Peter Kremlin, live on Sky News Australia. Good evening and welcome to the show. There's a lot going on, a lot of breaking news, particularly around the Liberal Party in New South Wales. I'll have exclusive updates on that in the program, but here's what else is coming up on the show this evening. The Prime Minister renews his attack on Labor over China after a surprise into the ASIO boss. More brutality from the Andrews regime in Victoria, this time brutality against one of their own. I'll bring you the extraordinary story of Lucia Lucino in just a minute. All-out war inside the New South Wales Liberal Party, as I alluded to, three months away now from the federal election. I'll bring you all of that breaking news. And Energy Minister Angus Taylor slams New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane's plan for a giant battery to replace the loss of Australia's largest coal-fired power station. Anyone who thinks a 700-megawatt battery that lasts for two hours is going to replace a 2,800-megawatt coal-fired power station is delusional. So that, that's not enough. It can play a role. Of course, it can play a role. But we're going to need serious replacement. But first, nothing to worry about here is the Greenleft's reaction to the news today that Australia's largest coal-fired power station will be shut down in just three years' time, seven years earlier than the company that owns it, Origin Energy, told us previously. This is the Uraring plant just outside Newcastle in New South Wales. And it's happening at a time when the UK and Europe are showing us what happens when there's an energy crisis. Having been recently plunged into blackouts, brownouts and involuntary power rationing because of an over-reliance on unreliable renewable energy, as well as Russia's unwillingness to sell them more gas. The green boosters and investors will keep telling you how cheap wind and solar power has become. And thanks to cheap solar panels and windmills, nearly all imported from China, of course, and awash with subsidies, it is cheap. But only when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. The trouble is we need power 24-7, and our heavy industries need it at scale. Eliminating coal, which today is still almost 70% of our power generation, without alternative baseload power, is an act of economic self-harm. Even Matt Keane, the New South Wales Energy Minister and Treasurer too, who's a non-stop advocate for renewables, seemed very much on the back foot today with this decision that will remove 20% of his state's power supply at a stroke. Let me say that uh, this was not the New South Wales government's decision. Well, Origin approached me about the possibility of today's decision a number of months ago. Uh, we've been engaging constructively with Origin. Obviously, I would have liked uh, this power station to have continued running to the end of its life. I want all our power stations to run to the end of their lives, uh, giving us enough time to replace that capacity. Really, McKean? When it's your policies that have been a key driver in making coal and gas uneconomic in New South Wales, causing these companies driven by profit to vacate the market, slash jobs, and now you're scrambling to assure voters you've got a plan when clearly this is an unmitigated mess. Origin Energy, well, they're clearly not scared of the New South Wales Treasurer, are they? Are bringing forward their decision to walk away from the state's largest power station seven years earlier than planned? They're looking after their bottom line. Like all big companies, they just want to make a profit. And taking out your airing 
will drive up power prices for origin consumers, plus it'll buy them green bragging rights while leaving the government to carry the can on the issue of grid reliability. Over the past few years, power in this country has become less affordable and less reliable, basically because we run our power system to reduce emissions rather than produce power 24-7. Wholesale power prices are up 80% in real terms since we started the move to renewables, essentially because consumer subsidies for wind and solar plus massive variability in price as the wind varies and sun moves in and out of the clouds, well, they've wrecked the economics of coal and gas-fired power. Here is Keen again today trying to spin his way out of any responsibility for this mess. We're seeing investors uh, moving away from carbon or coal-fired power stations. We're seeing shareholders won't invest in them. We're seeing economic pressures. And Origin in their statement today said that it had nothing to do with the New South Wales government and it had everything to do with the economic pressures that they're facing uh, in this climate. How stupid do this bloke think we are? It's not the market that's driving the move to renewables, it's the distortions that government policy has injected into the market. Plus the green activists who turn up to AGMs and bully timid public companies into getting out of coal, combined with the weight of union super funds that use their institutional shareholder clout to drive Labor Party thinking into Australia's corporate boardrooms. If coal really is uneconomic, why is our thermal coal exports at record levels? And why is China, which never lets environmental sensitivity get in the way of economic growth, massively expanding its coal fleet? Wholesale power prices almost doubled in Victoria after the Hazelwood power station exited the system in 2017. After losing its big coal-fired generator in South Australia, well, they suffered a statewide blackout in 2016 because the wind turbines had to be shut down and the interconnector with Victoria failed during a storm. There's now a Tesla battery in South Australia, but it can power the state for less than 10 minutes. Today, the New South Wales government tried to reassure people with talk of a giant battery to take your earrings place. Now, good luck with that. Just ask those living in Adelaide. The basic problem here is the emissions obsession to which nearly all governments in this country have now succumbed. In countries like ours, there's been a near universal pretense that it's possible to have the best of all worlds. Cheap power plus lots and lots of jobs and low emissions. In fact, we can have lower emissions, but with more and more expensive power and fewer and fewer jobs, especially jobs in heavy industry. Or we can lose our emissions obsession and have cheaper power and more jobs. The Morrison government is as guilty as anyone here, today criticising the closure of your airing while running ads on this network, boasting about getting rid of coal as a way to get down to net zero. Of course, get there with nothing yet invented to replace coal and gas. And no willingness, even now in election, to have a discussion about nuclear. If China really is a threat, that they keep telling us it is, and I believe it is, it won't be much of a fight, will it, if we can't keep the lights on, let alone make the steel needed to defend ourselves.
All right, let's get to Canberra for the headlines. Last sitting day of the year, five weeks off, come back for budget, it's all going on. And then an election, Sky News political reporter Trudy McIntosh on standby. Good evening to our top stories in Canberra. The Morrison government argues it's fair game to paint Labor as soft on China ahead of the election. The leader of the Labor Party is the Chinese government's pick at this election. The Prime Minister has doubled down despite warnings from Australia's spy chiefs, past and present, that his attacks risk damaging national security. I don't think that serves the national interest. It only serves the interest of one country, and that is China. I know why they're doing it, but it is grubby beyond belief. Labor argued Mr Morrison is out of line by referring to Richard Miles as a Manchurian candidate or a puppet of a foreign power. We have the leader of a nation wanting to make his country look weaker. That is horrifically irresponsible. But after question time, the Labor leader himself used that line against the Prime Minister. So if you're looking for a Manchurian candidate, he sits over there. Because he has served with the campaign that has happened this week, the interests of China, not our national interests. Australia's largest coal power plant will be shut down seven years ahead of schedule. Origin Energy has announced it will bring forward the closure of the Araring plant in New South Wales to 2025. Obviously, I would have liked uh, this power station to have continued running to the end of its life. Affordable, reliable energy is what Australian families, households and businesses rely on every day. Origin says it plans to partly replace the 3,000 megawatt shortfall into the power grid with a big battery, but concedes... Uh, it'll only play part of the role going forward and certainly doesn't replace the full... Um, uh, uh, retirement of a raring. The 700 megawatt battery that lasts for two hours is going to replace a 2800 megawatt coal fire power station is delusional. And Australia's unemployment rate remains steady in January despite the hit from the Omicron outbreaks. The jobless rate remains at 4.2%, but there was a big fall in the number of hours worked across the nation, with people off sick and forced to isolate as close contacts. Despite all of that, we're seeing the numbers coming out today, which speaks very much to the strength of the economy. Trudy McIntosh, Sky News, Canberra. All right, for his analysis on the role between the Prime Minister and opposition leader over China, let's bring the foreign editor at the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, joining me now from Melbourne. Greg, I want to start getting your thoughts on the significant interventions we've had First last night from Mike Burgess on the ABC, he's the head of ASIO, and then of course a former ASIO boss, Dennis Richardson, here on Sky News this morning. I have to say I lean to the position of Peter Jennings, who's the head of ASPE, who says it's not legitimate uh, to refer to Labor frontbenchers as stooges for China or Manchurian candidates, but I think it's absolutely fair and in fact much needed to look at the record of the major parties on national security, defence, border protection, look the whole lot as we head into an election campaign. How do you see it? Well, Peter, I must say I agree with you. I've got the greatest possible respect for Mike Burgess and uh, Dennis Richardson, both uh, outstanding Australians, not political. I wrote a column about this today. Uh, I think the government has a good record on China, but this rhetoric has been... Um, over, overdone in the last week. It, it's quite improper to call Richard Miles a Manchurian candidate. The Manchurian candidate arises from a film in which a candidate for the US presidency was brainwashed to act in China's interest against US national interest. 
That's grossly insulting to Richard Miles, who's a perfectly patriotic, normal Australian. Uh, I think the government has got its rhetoric badly wrong here for a couple of reasons. First, they're basically not telling the truth about the Labor Party. Now, you might say the Labor Party's motives are not pure, but they've certainly been absolutely in lockstep with the government on national security questions. And indeed, you'll remember, Peter, the Turnbull government tried to pass an extradition treaty with China, which would have been disastrous, and the Labor opposition stopped mm -hmm. them. So that's one thing. The second mm -hmm. thing is, I don't think they engage in such flamboyant and extravagant rhetoric about China purely for an election campaign. I think that's, uh, that's silly. We've got enough real problems with China. And then I think that tends to devalue in the public mind can you take the Prime Minister seriously when he is talking seriously, when he's using this extravagant language just for political purposes? Having said that, it's absolutely right to examine the record of both parties. And Labor has a very bad record on national security from its last term in government, when it cut our defence spending to record lows, uh, didn't um, commission an Australian naval boat uh, and, and made a mess itself of the China relationship. So that... and. That was more the tone today in question time. Uh, so I think this is a sign, frankly, of a government in trouble. It reminded me of Kevin Rudd saying that Tony Abbott would produce a shooting war with Indonesia if he turned back the boats. A ridiculous uh, statement by Kevin Rudd. And I think, you know, the yeah. government's statements the last day or two have been a bit the same category. Yeah, but I want to underscore those comments you made. I think that where the government's got themselves into to trouble is the rhetoric is overblown in relation to, to China and the China stance between the two major parties. Fair enough. But on the issue of national security and against all those things you mentioned, uh, spending went down to sort of pre-World War II levels under Kevin Rudd and Julian Gillard. They, they monumentally slashed the funding to our intelligence agencies. And I know firsthand, if it wasn't for some good people on the Labor right, they would have had a split time and time again with legislation in the early part of the Abbott years and dealing with boat turnbacks. So I think national security should be front and centre. I don't think there's, there's, there's no more important issue as people go to the ballot box. I just, I guess the challenge here for the government without losing support is to keep it temperate and focused on what Labor's done in the past, not necessarily flying a kite, uh, about, you know, reds under the bed and all that sort of stuff that we've seen come out of ASIO. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Peter. You know, Labor's record in office was terrible. Um, I compared it to the Whitlam government. Um, and the Whitlam government was so bad that the Hawke government, when it got into office, its one overriding operational principle was to be the absolute opposite of everything Whitlam did. So Hawke, uniquely among modern prime ministers, commissioned submarines that were actually built Hawke took a very tough line against the KGB in the Coombe-Ivanov affair, and he sort of exiled Gough Whitlam to the UNESCO ambassadorship to get him out of the country. And Albanese, should he become prime minister, needs to take the same sort of actions because not only did Rudd Gillard Rudd slash defence spending, but they produced a white paper, a defence white paper, saying our circumstances were worsening and we urgently needed 12 regionally superior conventional submarines as a matter of the utmost national urgency. And the very next day, they began slashing money out of defence and didn't do a single thing to advance our submarines in their term in office. So, And, of course, they had an utter cataclysmic failure on border security. So on all of that, mm -hmm. the government's on a winner. 
I can't understand, you know, it's sort of this negative genius that the government sometimes exhibits to to find the one thing where they're, they're not strong, you know, this overblown rhetoric, mm. and ignore all the things where they are strong. Right. Reprochement with the French. Uh, there's talk in the Financial Review today that uh, we have earned an invitation to a summit that will be hosted by the French in Paris on the Indo-Pacific after some of uh, our neighbours in the region, European neighbours, uh, convinced the Parisians to let us there. Uh, what do you think? Is this, is this a thawing or could they have had a reasonable summit, of course, without Australia? Well, God, the French are hopeless, aren't they? They really are hopeless. I mean, imagine having an Indo-Pacific summit without Australia because you still myth about the fact that you made such a mess of your own submarine performance that Australia had to pull out of that contract. But frankly, I don't see why the French don't invite the Americans to their summit. I mean, where this is a time when the West is being challenged by two vicious totalitarian mm. regimes in Russia and China, immensely militarily powerful, immensely economically powerful. What you want is a solidarity amongst democracies and non-totalitarian powers. So, you know, Emmanuel Macron st stamps his tiny foot and talks about a European defence force and all the rest of it. The Europeans don't spend enough money on defence, don't produce their own defence power. They, with their population and their wealth, they should be able to absolutely uh, outperform Russia in military terms, instead of which they're one million percent dependent on the United States. So what point would France make if it had a summit of the Indo-Pacific and left out the United States' most powerful nation in the Indo-Pacific and Australia an exemplary democracy in the Indo-Pacific? They got talked into a half-reasonable outcome. Well, I suppose that's something. But my goodness me, I hope that freedom of the, of the, of the free world never depends on French judgment and resolve. Well, this is timely, isn't it? The point I'm going to make in a minute because uh, the French have history of being bailed out, of course. Tuesday just passed, marked 80 years since the fall of Singapore, a calamitous event that many Australians will uh, still remember. We also had the 80-year anniversary of the Bangkok Island massacre yesterday, and I still have shivers up my spine every time I talk about the events of that day and the heroism of those women in particular Vivian Bullwinkle. And of course, on the weekend on Saturday, we've got the 80-year anniversary of the bombing of Darwin. I mean, we're talking about this, this very difficult time in our region, Greg. We can't fail to mark these events because there's a lot of history there that we need to learn the lessons of for today, don't we? Well, you're absolutely right, Peter. Um, you know, there were enough troops, really, to put up a defence of Singapore. But the Allies were complacent and slow and lazy, whereas the Japanese, in a purely military sense, were dynamic and proactive. Uh, the British did have two battleships in the region. They were vulnerable and they both got sunk. And it was a complete failure of military imagination on the Allies' part, a, a sense that Singapore could never fall, which uh, led to the Singapore disaster and then led to Darwin being bombed. Now, thank God the Americans intervened and uh, the mm. Japanese were turned back, partly by heroic Australian fighting, but also, let's be quite blunt, by American power. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we wouldn't be free if it weren't for American power. Now, our defence policy ever since then has been to just hold the hands of Uncle Sam and hope that he'll, he'll look after everything. 
I don't think that's good enough. And we are in the same sort of complacency today. Even all these years mm. of Conservative government, we've still produced almost nothing in defence capability because we have a failure of imagination, which is very comparable to the failure that we had in the, in the fall of Singapore, to imagine what an enemy might do, you know, which would be outside the textbook. I've got to leave it there, but they are sobering thoughts, Greg Sheridan. Thank you, as always. Tell you what, little kids at home, grandparents, tell your daughters, don't Google Greta Thunberg. Have a look at Vivian Bullwinkle. If you want a hero, that's a real hero. Right, for his reaction to the early closure of the Iranian coal-fired power station, let's bring in business commentator Terry McCran, joining me now from Melbourne. All right, Terry, everyone else will talk uh, around and around the mulberry bush. What does this closure mean for power prices? Well, Peter, it doesn't mean anything good. It might deliver some short-term uh, sugar hit uh, because wind, quote-unquote, and solar, quote-unquote, are free. So we don't actually have to pay for it. But the reality is they can't function unless they are backed up by real power stations. And we have three choices in that regard. They are coal-fired, gas-fired or nuclear-fired, nuclear power stations. And unless and until we actually put in place a program to replace each and every coal-fired power station with one of those three sorts, uh, my preference, and I, I think I've got a suspicion that your preference would be a modern low-emissions coal-fired power station, uh, but certainly one of coal, gas or nuclear, in the long run, we're going to end up in a situation where no matter how cheap the power might be from time to time, uh, although I sincerely doubt that will actually happen, uh, we'll mm. be having brownouts and blackouts. And if anybody wants to look at Australia's future, they only have to look at what's happening in the UK right now, where power prices in their embrace of particularly wind, you can't get much solar in the UK, uh, particularly wind, has seen power prices go up by 30% because they're making themselves totally reliant on gas uh, as much as they can, obviously. They still have coal, they still have mm. nuclear. But when the wind doesn't blow, they turn on expensive gas. But they've actually got the gas-fired power stations. We are still proposing to build maybe we one haven't. new gas-fired power station. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to make that make the point too. In the recent uh, months, we've seen announcements in the UK about uh, nuclear power plants. We know that Macron is facing an election shortly. As an election winner has gone out there and announced six new reactors, it's the word that can't dare mention its name in an election campaign here in Australia. Matt Keane says it's all right, though, Terry. Calm down. We've got a big battery <laughs> on the way. You can't make steel with a battery, right? You can't use the smelters that we have in this country with a battery. How good is this battery going to be? Well, as Angus Taylor put it very succinctly, you're closing a 2,800 megawatt power station and you're replacing with this gigantic battery 700 megawatts, which will last all of two hours. Um, you better hope that the wind only stops blowing for two hours in that case uh, until you can recharge it. I mean, it's just insane to go down this path and it will certainly lead to blackouts and brownouts. And what we see, I think, from the, the statement today, that future is going to come a lot faster than we might have thought, that we might have thought we could sort of patch around the edges as they pro we progressively close state stations, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, 
we, you know, over a 15 to 20 year time period into the into the 2040s. What the closure, the accelerated closure of, of this one tells us is that because it makes no commercial sense for people to keep open coal-fired power stations, mm. when they're trying to compete against wind, they have to fill in the gaps around wind. It just becomes totally uncommercial to operate a, a coal-fired power station in that circumstance. And another point, P Peter, I think, which we're going to see, we've got this national grid. We've seen the stations close mm -hmm. in Victoria and New South Wales, and ultimately that mm -hmm. means we rely on Queensland, Queensland's power stations to keep things going. I think we're likely to see a replay of closed borders, this time for power rather than for COVID. Uh, as we go into this world, it'll be dog-eat-dog. -dog. Each body, every cut, every state trying to keep the lights on and not be able to rely on that national grid. Well, you have idiotic policy. We reap what they sow. I tell you what, Terry McCran, thank you for that analysis tonight. Straight on the back of that big decision today. Look, I want to bring you another shocking story about the brutality of the Andrews regime. Just last week, former Victorian public servant Lucia Lucino was fined $2,500 and handed a six-month diversion order. Now, what was her crime? Well, trying unsuccessfully to book a manicure at her home during Melbourne's first lockdown in 2020. Now, on the face of it, you might think this is just another example of heavy-handedness from Victoria Police, except as the Herald Sun's Tom Maneer has exposed, there's a whole lot more to this story. Lucia Lucino wasn't just any public servant. She was the executive assistant to the chief health officer, Brett Sutton. Back in October 2020, after she'd texted those beauticians to tee up the manicure and didn't get one, she wasn't just given a slap on the wrist, she was arrested. Her home was raided by police, the phone was seized and trawled through by Victoria Police. According to Tom Manier, none of this happened because she'd broken lockdown restrictions, but because Lucia Lucino was suspected of leaking the Andrews government's roadmap out of lockdown to the Herald Sun. Now think about that for a second. A health department insider suspected of leaking, she doesn't just lose her job, she's arrested, the home is raided, phone searched, she's taken to court. As Manir noted today, it's hard to read her treatment as anything other than an act of intimidation. Was she the only public servant subjected to this sort of police action? We don't know, but I doubt it. Spoke to Tom Manir today, he's not going to let this go. More and more, the treatment of people behind closed doors by the Andrews government is coming to light, isn't it? Those bullying allegations from the Labor MP and now this staffer, Brett Sutton's personal assistant, who no longer has her job. All right, after the break, I'll take you inside the factional brawl destroying the New South Wales Liberal Party. Don't go anywhere. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, finally, the Victorian New South Wales governments have announced an easing of COVID restrictions. Density limits out, singing and dancing allowed back in, thank goodness for that. A push to get people back into the office and in more than welcome news, the end of masks 
almost there. These are welcome changes across New South Wales and Victoria. But in so many cases, the damage has been done and some businesses we know will never come back. Others, they'll come back only when governments get their workers back into our CBDs. Joining me now from Melbourne is Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Chief, Paul Guerra. Paul, good news today. I think it's absolutely welcome, but it's only the start. How do we get the workers back into offices? How do we pick things up for small businesses inside our CBDs? Yeah, good evening, Pete. And you're right, good news today, particularly for hospitality venues and a range of retailers that no longer have to for or mandate the check-in of people as they come into the stores. But, you know, let's be honest here, the, the whole of the CBD, the whole of the hospitality is not going to recover until we get office workers back. Strong signalling today from the New South Wales government that that will occur next Friday. We now need to see that from the Victorian government as well. What's the impediment? I mean, surely government can order its public servants back into work? Yeah, so there's two things remaining in, in Victoria that are making it difficult. The first is a strong recommendation that if you can work from home, you should work from home. And the second is the need to wear a mask when you're in the office. So we believe both of those should go. In fact, the mantra should be, if you can work from the office, you should work from the office and masks should go in the same way that it's gone in hospitality. If you're sitting down, take your mask off and hopefully we get to a point where we don't need the mask at all. Those two simple things will enable workers to start coming back into the office. And of course, as that happens, mm. then the daytime traffic goes up and all those hospitality venues, the speciality retails, they start to get foot traffic and they can start to survive. But, but what's stopping government? I don't, I don't get the argument why government can't bring them back. These are government's rules. Uh, I don't think it, it's anywhere like it was. Why can't they make the change? Yeah, a number of people have spoken to me today about the fact that, well, you can dance on a dance floor, but you can't come back in the office. It just doesn't make sense. And we need to see that change and we need to see that change quickly. So I said before, New South Wales have flagged that that will occur next Friday. Let's mm. hope Victoria follows suit. Maybe we can get it in even sooner than that, which would be welcomed by everybody. Look, I have a sneaking suspicion. A lot of the public servants, Victoria's got the largest public service in the land. A lot of the public servants like the flexibility of working from home. This is a government in Victoria that's up for election in November. And I think uh, they're quite happy to give people what they want right now, this side of the election. Yeah, but it's tough. I mean, we're near the end of February and most... I'm business... with you. I'm with you. Yeah, we'd use this period to do the planning for the year and that's why we need to see people coming back in. You know, it's, it's really simple. I think the bird has flown in terms of are we going to be five days in the office? No, we're not going to be. But I think the three days in the office, two days at home is a pretty good compromise mm. for most people. And even with that, that'll be a significant change for the businesses that rely on the foot traffic through the day. Well, I know you've been a huge advocate for business in Victoria through all of this. Keep up the hard work, Paul Guerra. We'll keep the pressure on here as well. Thank you for your time. Thanks. All right, let's turn to New South Wales now and the circus that's consuming internal Liberal Party politics. In an extraordinary meeting held yesterday, the New South Wales State Executive was told a federal intervention is needed to prevent it from breaching its constitution. However, both the Conservative and moderate factions of the New South Wales State Executive well, they're concerned that the push for federal intervention would allow members of the Prime Minister's centre-right faction to overrule decisions and install their own candidates. It's a very messy situation. Lots of legal advice and threats being sent left, right and centre. And it's exposing some very deep hostilities within the New South Wales Liberal Party. Even more astonishing, the Liberals 
don't yet have candidates in Warringah, Hughes, Dobell, Ed Monero, and the pre-selection of a number of sitting MPs, Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, uh, Minister Susan Lee in Farrah, not finalised. Weeks out from an election. Joining me now from Canberra is the Australian's federal politics reporter, Max Madison. Uh, that's all the background, I guess, Max, because there's been a breaking news development late this afternoon. The New South Wales executive have now voted in favour of bringing in federal intervention. I think that's extraordinary. Tell us more. Yeah, it's truly quite remarkable. So what we've seen is the New South Wales state executive strongly support the proposal that was put forward by New South Wales President Philip Ruddock this afternoon in an electronic ballot. So what we'll have now is that this proposal will go before federal executive, which is sitting as we speak. Um, if that is passed, we will, we will see the executive have federal intervention imposed upon itself, which is extraordinary and I, I think actually quite unprecedented. Well, we know we've got federal intervention involved in the Victorian Labor Party, but they're involved in branch stacking. They had to purge a quarter of the membership base. There were allegations of corruption. I mean, you can see the reason why they can't run themselves down here. But the issue in New South Wales in the Liberal Party has pertained to uh, claims that there are ministers in Canberra acting as the Prime Minister's uh, representative on that meeting council who don't want rank-and-file pre-selections who don't want ordinary members to vote the candidate to represent them in their seats, as is the law of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. So how does this stack up as justice for rank-and-file members in New South Wales? That, that's very true. I mean, that's the question that many members of New South Wales State Executive and many members of the Federal Parliament are asking. You know, we, as you would be well aware, the wearing motions put forward by Tony Abbott in 2017 put forward to have plebiscites for every seat and it was an attempt to end this kind of factional brutalism that we've seen across the political spectrum but also you know in the Liberal Party of course and now we're seeing an attempt by some members I mean many fingers are pointed at Immigration Minister Alex Hawke um, you know many mm -hmm. members of his own party are pointing their fingers at him so yeah it's, it's truly quite remarkable and I, I guess our fear is that if this federal executive uh, intervention goes ahead, we might see that candidates are uh, imposed across the state in the seats that are outstanding. This is a shocking look going into an election because I've been around the Liberal Party most of my adult life. Uh, given the strength of feeling about democratic plebiscites amongst rank-and-file members, I reckon some will go on strike and not want to assist the party when it needs them most in the next few weeks before we hit the campaign. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is something that, you know, FEC presidents have repeatedly warned over the past few weeks in emails to state executive. This is the only opportunity, really, that branch members get to have a say in the direction of a party, and they're being deprived of that. So, you know, there is a real risk of come election day, but there won't be many people handing out how-to-vote cards. And so, you know, does the Liberal Party run the risk of, you know, not having enough bodies on the ground on election day? And, you know, I think you're very right in that respect. Look, this is the hallmarks of uh, the Liberal Party in Canberra being a suicide bomber in their own election chances of re-election. I think it's extraordinary. Well, we'll watch it all closely, Max. I look forward to your report in The Australian tomorrow. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. Right. There's been another development, hasn't there, in the donation disclosure scandal embroiling Green Left Independent Zali Stegall. According to nine newspapers, the same financial controller who failed to disclose the six-figure donation to Stegall 
Well, he also failed to disclose a payment from Malcolm Turnbull's son, Alex Turnbull, to Liberal turncoat turned independent Julia Banks back in 2019. Now, you'll remember Banks switched seats out of a seat of Chisholm to challenge Health Minister Greg Hunt in Flinders. There she received a miserable 13% of the vote. More importantly, though, the $25,000 donation from Alex Turnbull wasn't disclosed for almost two years after it was made, earning the financial controller in question, Damien Hodgkinson, a formal rebuke from the Australian Electoral Commission. Hodgkinson is also the financial controller for fellow Green Left Independents Allegra Spender and Monique Ryan. I'll stay across all of those money entrails with these Voices candidates right now and all the way through till the election. All right, after the break, deficits worth $340 billion on the horizon, but everyone says now is not the time to pay back debt, including the Treasury Secretary. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm the former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. Well, it was the last question time in Parliament today before they break for five weeks. And of course, we have the budget and then we'll have an election. Joining me are my two favourite freedom fighters from Melbourne, the Institute of Public Affairs, Gideon Rosner, and columnist from the Herald Sun, Caleb Bond. Well, Gideon, it's, it's 11 minutes to midnight. You've been a staffer in Canberra, in the Parliament. What do you mm. reckon the mood would be like at the moment? Oh, it, it tends to be the last day of school before holidays. You get a lot of uh, muck-up day behaviour, I suppose you could say, not least of all in question time. Um, but look, watching question time today, uh, I, I can see what the government's trying to do. It's trying to create a risk or a hesitation factor with Anthony Albanese when it comes to national security. And Labor does have big questions to answer when it comes to China. And I pay full credit to good, great people like James Patterson who have articulated those risks on this network very, very well this week. But watching Question Time, I, I can't help but feel that Scott Morrison and his government are hamming up the possibility of war with China for political gain. Now, that makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. That, I think it's too important for that. So, yes, we, we should be asking questions about what Anthony Albanese would do if the worst happens, but we have got to uh, have a bit of a bex and a lie down with some of this stuff because uh, I would hate to think uh, that, uh, that we're going down the garden path of war uh, for, for political purposes. Caleb? Uh, I have to agree with Gideon here. Um, I am fully on board with questioning China and we definitely need to question uh, whether Anthony Albanese would be an easier prime minister on China. Uh, but I think we're over-egging the pudding a little bit here. We know that they are um, susceptible to lashing out. We've certainly seen that with what they've done to us in terms of trade sanctions. And I don't think we need to be going around unnecessarily inflaming that. Sure, ask the questions, but let's be serious about it. Right. Today, in estimates, the Treasury Chief, the Secretary, Stephen Kennedy, gave a budget update. He's calling for the government to sensibly taper spending. Well, good Lord, I hope they do. The $337 billion was spent on the pandemic. It was right that he says, uh, stop that spending. 
but he effectively endorsed years of these massive budget deficits. Gideon, uh, you know what it's like when governments have to pay back this money, or they do on one side of politics, they don't on the other. And we're soon to approach mm. $1 trillion in debt. If debt reduction isn't a feature of this campaign and Labor are elected, what sort of hope have we got? Well, we don't have any hope, Peter, because uh, the old way of thinking that persisted under Howard and indeed the Abbott government that debt should actually, actually be repaid uh, paid back, that's not fashionable anymore, not, not least of all in bureaucratic circles. The rise of mud and monetary theory, which is this absurd idea that governments, because they control the supply of money, they can basically print as much of it as they want, uh, that has become a been taken seriously by people who should know better. Um, but as you said, we've spent over $300 billion, over a quarter of a trillion dollars in part paying people not to work. A year 10 economics student can tell you that if you push the supply of currency up and you push production down, inevitably you get inflation. And the huge inflationary numbers that we're seeing printed in the US and Europe will happen here. There's no stopping it anymore. Uh, what Scott Morrison has to worry about is when the, whether the inflation bomb detonates in the middle of an election campaign. Because I can tell you this, if Australians are paying 3 to $5 for a litre of petrol and $40 for a pint and $90 for an Uber uh, to the next neighbourhood, in the middle of an election campaign, uh, Robert Menzies himself could not sc uh, save Scott Morrison for the ba uh, from the baseball bats uh, that are about to hit him. Well, talk about wasting money. Let's go to Queensland. They've got not one but two <laughs> COVID facilities. One's just opened out at Toowoomba, 500 bed. It's cost hundreds of millions of dollars. I've been a bit coy with the numbers, but it's certainly up there. And it'll cost millions of dollars to run every year. It's got 21 people in it, this facility. The new one's about to come and course, down in Victoria, we've got them as well. I tell you what, Caleb, you know, these could have been here months and months ago. We're at the tail end of this pandemic. I don't know. I think this is a colossal waste of money. Oh, well, I mean, it's $50 million to build the thing and the Queensland government is leasing this land from someone else. So God knows how long this all goes on for. There's not going to be anyone in them. There is really no purpose for them anymore. Some people like Anastasia Palaszczuk still seem to be stuck in 2020. I mean, we saw her push back uh, the start of school by two weeks. She is desperately clinging on to COVID because it is one of the few things that she's been able to be strong on. Uh, she really needs to give it up. It is a total waste of money. Well, I think COVID was a winner for incumbents a while back, but I think it's now an albatross. Mm, not anymore. she's got a bigger integrity fish to fry <laughs> than, than quarantine facilities. Um, I want to go actually now, if I can, to Canada, I want to play a shocking slur from the Canadian PM, shouldn't be surprised, Justin Trudeau against Conservatives in the Parliament. Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. Pretty disgusting statement there, Gideon. Uh, this Freedom Convoy is digging in. That's unbecoming for a Prime Minister, isn't it? Look, Peter, we've spoken a lot about authoritarianism in this country for the last two years and for good reason. But this bloke Trudeau, he makes Dan Andrews look like the Dalai Lama. Uh, this is extraordinary. You know, I work at the IPA. I know how fragile freedom is. But I, even I never thought I'd see the day where a supposedly or formally, I should say, liberal democratic country would suspend the bank accounts of people who donated to the protesters, uh, would uh, cancel the insurance mm. policies by government fiat of truck drivers, would uh, invoke anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism financing uh, powers against 
Canadian citizens who are protesting peacefully. This is absolutely off the chart stuff. And I've got bad news for you. If they can seize your money and your property and cancel your personhood in Canada, of all places, over dissenting from the government, that's what it's mm. about. It's not about health. It's about cancel. It's about, it's about uh, crushing dissent. If they can do it there, they can do it in the US and Europe. And guess what? They can do it in Australia as well. All it would take it was is for Foreign, Home mm. Affairs Minister Christina Keneally to designate uh, you and I and everybody else on the right as right-wing extremists and, and, and domestic terrorists. Uh, and I, I recall from a program last year that you're a bit of a cryptocurrency sceptic, Peter, but if you are not pulling your money out of the bank and putting it into Bitcoin, uh, at least a little bit of as a precautionary measure, you have to have your head read because we cannot trust, I don't think, the banking system and a currency controlled by the government anymore. We just can't. I tell you that, that the line there you had, the Home Affairs Minister, Christina Keneally, forget running a campaign on China, just constant <laughs> repetition yeah. of Christina Keneally running border protection. That'll turn votes, Wanda Caleb, that will turn votes. Absolutely. The uh, the great hope of the western suburbs of Sydney, of course, all the way from Scotland, Ireland. But, I mean, <laughs> we, we have really seen here uh, a, a liberal democracy falling apart in Canada. The fact that they have gone to these extremes to stop people from protesting should be a real worry, not just there, but for the rest of the Western world. It goes against everything we believe in. Oh, I love you guys on a, a Thursday. A lot of common sense, a lot of feisty talk. Right into my ad break. Thank you for your time, Gideon. <sighs> Gideon, 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 Caleb, I'll see you next week. Gideon's getting married too. I was going to tell you something there, but I may have pictures to show you after a couple of days, a couple of weeks' time. All right. We're going to talk dams after the break, but good news on dams, not bad news on dams, a good story to come. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winter? <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Well, politicians do a lot of talking when it comes to building things across the country, press conferences, uh, video announcements, choreographed, choreographed photo ops, shovels in the ground, all that, and I've been there, helped orchestrate them. My next guest, though, doesn't just talk about building things, he actually gets them done. John Cotter is the founder of Bowen River Utilities. He's in the final stages of getting approval for a new dam and pumped hydro near Mackay in central Queensland. If it gets the green light, it'll be the largest green energy project in northern Queensland. It'll create hundreds and hundreds of jobs. I read into him at Parliament House at the start of the week and I said, come on and give us some good news. So John Cotter joins me now. John, how close are you to getting the go-ahead? Well, thanks very much for having me along, Peter, and thank you for getting water on the agenda nationally. I know you've pushed this hard. Uh, what next for us is we want to be building within 12 months, Peter, and uh, what we're looking now for is, is government commitment from both sides uh, to make that happen. Give me a sense of the scale of the projects. The people at home who may not be familiar with the gigalitres involved, at the power we're interested in with the closure today in New South Wales before time of a coal-fired power station, give us a sense of the water capacity, the power, and what this will actually do for the community. The dam project itself is about uh, one and a half times the size of Sydney Harbour. And what that means is we've got 
a lot of water that's consistently available to grow new and reliable food precincts in an area that's been largely neglected by both sides of government for a long time. The other piece is our pumped hydro. Uh, think of that as a giant battery, and that's one and a half gigawatts of power that can just be turned on. What that means is we can replace, I guess, the ageing fleet of assets in Queensland over time with clean energy. And that's why we're pretty excited that this is in the heart of coal country and we're talking about the sustainable future and the manufacturing that could come from cheap water and energy. Mm. So it's not just the jobs to build the dam, the Urana Dam extensions, but it's, it's like we see the Paradise Dam near Bundaberg. It's then the spin-off industries. Uh, it's all the agriculture and things that come from it. We know uh, in and around uh, Darwin into, you know, north of uh, WA, there's big horticultural projects because water is available in previously arid areas. Is that the real target in this project? Yes, it is, Peter. Um, there are a lot of countries that want our food. Um, we want our food produced clean and green. But ultimately, when I talk to people in Collinsville, what they want is their sons and daughters to stay there because they know that there's manufacturing jobs in, in clean energy and clean food. So if we've got packing sheds and those new industries coming into an area like Collinsville, water gives us that opportunity. The second part of that is once we have cheap water and we have cheap energy, the current um, talk around hydrogen, about fertiliser security, mm. well, those two ingredients um, give the opportunity for areas like the Bowen Basin to step up and take that manufacturing into the next century. Talk to me about the red tape and green tape because I was gobsmacked you've spent tens of millions of dollars just on the paperwork. Uh, yeah, Peter, um, there's been a lot of heavy lifting. Um, so this is my sixth year in partnership with uh, local community groups up there. Uh, we've produced uh, three levels of different business cases to satisfy the various government agencies, uh, over 45,000 pages of documentation, uh, two years of seasonal studies, um, we have had over 160 landowner um, meetings, um, over 280 uh, consultations with different community groups. Um, if you want to read any one of the 45,000 pages uh, in our environmental impact statement, Peter, I most welcome it. Um, I do hope a lot of people do read it, um, but we think we've really captured mm. and taken our time to get it right because we don't want to see another paradise. Um, in fact, we're, we're paradise plus. We want to see um, this done right uh, in partnership with the community, and we've done that heavy lifting. But it is a lot of, lot of bureaucracy wow. to jump through. We join you in all of that. Let's, uh, fingers crossed, you get an announcement this side of an election campaign, or perhaps it might be an election commitment. Who knows, John, but we're with you. Uh, good luck with the Arana Dam. Let's hope it all comes off. Thank you for your time. All right, I'm out of time. As well with the program, here's Andrew Bolt. I'm Andrew Rule, the host of the podcast, A Life and Crimes. Here are some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The brutal truth is that when you start looking at it, they always kill or injure a lot more than each other. The professional hitman used to be a professional hitman. Evil strikes in all forms, but particularly as stupidity. Life and Crimes is available 
wherever you get your podcasts.